you people in front kind of sit down so that the people in back who have nice seats can see. And by the way, tonight's performance is being recorded by Electra Records. I don't know what for, but I imagine there's a possibility of putting it in an album. So we cheer, make it nice and loud. Everybody, people, you're welcome. The doors. All right, all right. hop here in here at the beginning and sorry i'm a little late on this podcast i had a little bit of an illness that wasn't too uh, major or concerning but after i got sick i had some inner ear issues some medial ear issues uh partial hearing loss on my left side some fluid buildup is what caused that and a lot of bubbles and stuff that was hard to get rid of, and it made editing a podcast really hard. A little bit of, I think there's some tinnitus in there, and and it just made it real rough. In the interim, I've sort of cleaned up my office space that I use and and decluttered some stuff, but it made it editing my podcast was impossible with all the issues. So I apologize for that, but hopefully I don't have anything like that come up again, and I can move forward with scheduling. Luckily, I had blocked out some. Uh, some downtime in the podcast recording. I've already did some batch recording, so I could have a, a month or two off in April and May. So that actually worked to my benefit. Um, I have a lot of stuff in the pipeline. I still have an interview with Sweet Smoke that I was supposed to have a couple weeks ago. Some issues there. I, I want, there's one member who didn't get interviewed, and I want to see if I can pick that up. If I can't, I'll just edit it and put it out. I'm working on a Unsolved Mysteries type spoof. Not really a spoof, but in, inspired by... We're talking about the blue lady, and I'm working on a guest for that. I've already got some stuff in the can, some voiceover work done by the phenomenal Forrest Burgess from Astonishing Legends. And I've got other interviews lined up. So if there's something you're interested in, you know, just keep an eye on the feed. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff. But without further ado, here is the rest of my interview with Tarn Stefanos talking about the Boston Late Show. Yeah, they go and they eat at a restaurant nearby, and I'm sure Jim does go to the local bar and, and, you know, kicks more back as you know. And I think in between sets, he even smashes his mic in between uh, through the stage, right? Yeah. That's according to some of the accounts. Let's get into the whole show because I've got a lot of notes about this late show and something we'll just go beat by beat. And this crowd is a real ruckus crowd and they cheer madly almost after every number. And there's one guy closer to the audience, Mike, who is continuously making requests from soft parade. I know what you mean. Yes, a fellow soft parade fan. I, I admire that mystery person. Yeah, so can't blame the guy. He's trying to get get his in, and I think even Jim at one point says, "We'll get that on the next one." Acknowledging him when he says soft parade, and he never does it. But the band seems really inspired and and real good for for the especially that late show. I would go out on a limb and even say this is probably some of Robbie's best live guitar work. Oh, I, I would I would have to agree with that. Despite the flaws in Light My Fire, he was he was in top form. Even even in shows where Jim was not at his best, like Seattle, for example, I thought instrumentally that show was spot on. It was excellent, but Jim was just not invested in that particular evening. Though Vancouver, which happened within twenty four hours, was phenomenal. So you never knew what you got with Jim. You got Jim or you got Jimbo. Yeah, and at one point during this, he even says, "Just call me Jimbo." After when the music's over, somebody's yelling out, "Hey Jim!" Hey, Jim. Just call me Jimbo. Another interesting thing in '67, '68, Jim was wearing leather and snakeskin, and by '70, he was where he was. He looked like a college kid wearing corduroys and button-up shirts and t-shirts and so forth. So the 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 persona of the the physical persona of the lizard king was cast aside, basically. Um, so it it it, spe- it speaks to how the 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 music and the presentation of the music 
um, it, it evolved for better or for worse. But the strength of the Doors is they never they never stuck in one particular groove. It's the Beatles were the same actually. It's they continue to move to a different place in their musical sound and their presentation. Yeah, and another interesting thing about this show is it kicks off with Break on Through, and it seems like everybody's sort of getting warmed up and, and Densmore kicks in. He does the drums to break on through. Maybe he wanted to play it that, that afternoon. Densmore kicks that off, you know, sort of that bossa nova beat that we've uh, come so much so long to hear. I said, baby, we gonna have some fun. And this is another interesting thing. Break On Through is one of those endearing songs. So I'm running a poll on Twitter, and I'm, maybe a couple hundred people have voted on this poll. You know, And they're mostly younger Doors fans, I would say. Most of the fans who are on my Twitter page, I have about 900 or so followers. Not a whole lot, but you know, a, a, a somewhat all right amount for, for what, this fledgling podcast. And I've been running a March Madness bracket of vote on songs. And it's funny because the last two songs that won beat out Light My Fire. This was just about the singles. So Light My Fire got beat pretty early on by Riders on the Storm. So the final two songs of Riders on the Storm and Break On Through beat every other song. Touch Me beat uh, Wild Child. You know, Touch Me Back Wild Child beat any other door single is Riders on the Storm and Break On Through. I, mean, I thought that was interesting that those are the final two songs. Break On Through is a great tune. Have you noticed that, that Jim's style of singing would change like he would as we approach 1970 he wouldn't hit that high note anymore it would be yeah like i can't sing myself but but like like you know break on through do the other side but but by 1970 he would kind of keep keep it at a lower key i wonder i wonder if he felt his voice was changing or or if he if he just wanted to present the song in a somewhat different vocal what well, well, matrix show he probably he, he hit the did he hit the high note in matrix show it seems like there was a shift there though though definitely the the break on through here is a more croony song and and we hear the band leader Ray again in the middle of it, calling out, yelling for Jim to include the don't fight. You know, there you sit. He yells it out. You know, you hear him off my. There you sit. You know, he's, he's yelling and Jim, of course, extends that out so long. There you sit. There you sit. There you sit. All by yourself. Everybody's. You know, but but anyway, ends up being an eight-minute version of Break On Through. But there is a miscue that Ray has near the end, not changing chords on time, but he picks it back up and we, we get, a, you know, that, that version of Break On Through. I hope, I hope the the master tapes of the Matrix, which the Doors have acquired, see an official release with what we have from 2009, I believe. Um, I'm glad that's out, but it's it's the quality is just many rungs below the tapes the Doors acquired, and there's at least one instrumental that has never been heard by the public that's on the Matrix masters, possibly two instrumentals. And the one instrumental that we have heard is instrumental of summertime, mm-hmm. but the other two, they're a complete mystery. Nobody knows what they are. Maybe the, the, uh, legendary light bullshit number two, that could possibly be one of them. Yeah. When, when I, and eventually when I cover the matrix shows, man, I'd love to have you back on for that as well, because some of those matrix shows, man, are top notch. Some of the songs performed there, the performances rival, well, wound up on the album, uh, Particularly, um, summer's almost gone. 
the lyrics are just beautiful. Morning found us calmly unaware. Noon burnt gold into our hair. At night we swam the laughing sea. Summer's gone. Where will we be? And it's it's such a profound song. And it some say it's simply about sorrow, about about summer fading away. But I I always saw that song about the song as being about life, about growing old, basically mourning the passing of youth. So I think many of many of Jim's lyrics um, had deeper meaning. Yeah, and and Jim, I guess the the non, it seemed like the acid. The acid gym, if you want to call him that, the acid rock gym, was a lot more profound than the the beer drinking blues gym, the blues drinking Jimbo. Uh, even lyrically, I think it changes a lot on LA Woman, and a lot of the Morrison Hotel stuff, I think, is is stuff. Even the you know like like Peace Frog the stuff they found and had to find from notebooks when Jim wasn't there. You know, there's and you talked about the de-evolution or the devolving of, I guess, the artistry. And L.A. Woman is my favorite Doors album. I will say that because I love it and I can not never stop listening to L.A. Woman. It's an amazing album. But as far as content goes, I don't think it's their best work. And I, that doesn't make sense, I know, I guess. I I agree. I actually prefer Morrison Hotel to L.A. Woman. Yeah, yeah. And and we even get a little bit of this gem. He, after a break on through, he gives the I Believe in Democracy speech. I believe in democracy, man. Democracy, man. Democracy of souls, man. I don't think there, I don't think there should be a president, man. I think it should be a total democracy. And yep. Ray continues leading the band, calling out songs, before asking, uh, I believe John, if he wants to do when the music's over, and then Roadhouse. That's that was his his quote. Do you want to do when the music's over? Then Roadhouse. And Jim, they do road when the music's over. Jim gives an amazing, in fact, you know, he, he doesn't, his scream is not as good as the first show, but he just gives a scream and then the, the emphatic just F-bomb. He just drops right at the beginning. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, Jim being Jim, man. And he even inserts the little section, I don't believe you, I want to see you in the middle. As the band, as the raucous crowd, these especially these girls in the front. There's one woman with a very distinct accent. You know who I'm talking about like in the in the Boston show. She's like, yeah, she's she's right there, right at that mic, that audience mic, and he's right there just giving it back to her. And that's when he calls, says, "Just call me Jimbo." And Jim probably, I was counting throughout at the end of songs, at the beginning of songs, at the beginning of concerts, he probably says fifty plus all rights throughout, which. This show was the emphasis that that influenced uh, Matthew McConaughey in uh, Dazed and Confused, the movie. Did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think I remember reading an interview that he said that he was listening. I guess it had to be absolutely live. He was listening to it in the middle, in between takes, trying to get his character. And he said he heard it. And he said, uh, you know, how would I, I forget the exact wording? He was like, how, what do I want in life? You know, girls, uh, money and something else. And he's like. So Jim said, all right, all right, all right, all right, four times. He said, I only needed three, and I felt like that was my character. And so he went back on set, and he you know, hit that line, and it's become so iconic. And it's because of the Boston show that Jim has here that he even says that. You know, I, I had no idea. That, that's absolutely fascinating. Yep. I learned something new. Um, Doors related. That's always a good thing. But it, And this is funny. I think Robbie decides the next track because he goes into this. I mean, John's sort of doing drum fills between songs. And he launches into the to the riff of the spy and something they don't do often. I'm glad they did it. I it's not as good as this, as the album version, but it, it was it, it was a nice standout track. Like there are some some Doors shows get a bit repetitive, but but every now and again you'll have a rarity pop up like. In Stockholm, one of the sets they did, Love Street, the only known version of live version of that song. Um, and likewise, 
pretty sure this is the only version of the spy we have. Part of me thinks they did it another time, but I also thought, you know, he does the spy and we hear that same female just, you know, calling out Jim's, you know, saying right here, Jim, right here, look to the left. She's yelling that throughout the show. And Jim has some very Orange County Suite-esque improv, I thought, at the end of the spy. I don't think it's exact, but it just gave me the feeling. I seen you making it with that other man last week. I saw you. I saw you sneaking around. I wish you wouldn't do it, though. I want some love, baby. And maybe that's a stretch on my part. I'm I'm willing to admit that I see uh, patterns and things that probably aren't patterns but i just for some reason it gave me very pre-orange county blues morrison-esque stuff it's possible i don't quite hear it myself but i'll need to listen more to it i might i might make the connection myself i appreciate you not completely just destroying my my theory there i appreciate that wouldn't do that at all no (laughs) heavy we get the medley the heavy feedback during five to one I always wondered if was this Jim doing this on purpose? He oftentimes would spinning his mic or, or something like that. It, it reminded me of their 1970 Seattle performance with Jim's bird calls and uh, those heart, uh, the heart, the ear drum piercing feedback. Uh, I assume it done at the speakers. It was, it was awful in Seattle that, that, particular moment this also was, was ear piercing i think it, i think it was done with the intention of just being mischievous and annoying yeah. people because he yeah because they, the same thing happened in pittsburgh right he did the he did the bird calls in pittsburgh and then um but Seattle was awful. I mean, that, that that was the worst ever but but this <laughs> this was endurable this wasn't torturous i would say yeah but because no, Oh yeah, definitely annoying because Ray even gives the, I think somebody yells, yeah. And then you hear Ray yell the whole, you know, come on. He always yelled that. And we get the astrology rap after this, a funny thing. The same girl, you know, I'm a, you're a Sagittarius. That's right, baby. I'm a Sagittarius. So am I. And he's like, but I don't believe in it. And she's like, I, you know, I don't either. She like flips real quick. <laughs> I think it's a bunch of BS. And, you know, I know this, I want to get my whole kicks for the whole house goes up in flames and the cheers and, and everything. Got <laughs> that on the American Pearl. Yeah. Which is a great version of Roadhouse Blues, uh, which, you know, we talked about the Morrison Hotel. Uh, being released in the single band, you make me real back with Roadhouse Blues. The first round of the of the playoff, the March Madness, the March Madness bracket I had of singles was that versus the Roadhouse Blues live uh, with Back to the Moonlight Drive, and that one handedly. Everybody loves that version more. But another interesting thing on Build Me a Woman, he puts the I'm just a, mis- a mojo rising in there. Yes, yes. Uh, what an interesting song. Build Me a Woman is a song that seemed to have a different arrangement every time they performed it. If you listen to the version of, of Critique, it was very bluesy. If you listen to the versions that felt form, completely different. And this took a, a different form as well. Um, it's a piece that never really coalesced. Maybe, maybe... Uh, I mean, they have the absolutely live version, which I think is the form version, but it's like a a song which in of itself became a canvas, if you will. In Critique, it had a line that would pop up on a piece rod. I saw her coming just about the break of day. That became part of Peace Rod. 
Uh, and here in Boston, um, we had a line which would be incorporated into L.A. Woman. So it was, it was something really interesting Jim would do. He'd do this in other songs as well. He'd include snippets of lyrics that he had in his head, which eventually would turn up in another song. So in a way, it was kind of a preview he gave for his audience. Yeah. And we hear, we hear a re- another round of requests and the same female prominent voice saying, do everything, baby. She wants the, the whole show. And I'm sure Jim was willing to do it if the power don't get cut at the end. He adds the roll, baby, roll, do you make me real in the next one. And we get the one blue light, man. You got it. That's it, man. No more lights. Just one blue light. Something he does throughout. And uh, I always thought was funny on the Hollywood Bowl show. Was it the Hollywood Bowl where he's like, I just want that one light and and they won't turn the lights out because they're recording, <laughs> you know? Yeah, he, he wanted the lights off at the Hollywood Bowl. He practically argued with the light man at Stockholm. Turn off the lights. He said, let's do a little reverse psychology. Let's give me lots of light, bright light. Yeah, his, his Jim's fondness for for darkness. I mean, that's one reason why he could never have been filmed in Toronto in '69. In addition to not wanting to be filmed, it was pitch blackness for much of the much of that set, and the lighting in uh, for Isle of Wight, I think, was so awful was because Jim wanted the lights turned down. It's unfortunate that they, that for the outdoor performances, I, I wish they had had more early in the day of performances as they did in 60, 1967 because it seemed every time they performed at night there'd be no lights and we wouldn't have a film of the yeah. performance. What do you think is his was do you think that was him diverting the spotlight maybe or what do you think the reason for the hey I just it was it a mood thing or what do you think? I think it's a mood thing. I think that particularly for the end it's a very powerful piece that the darkness, and this is just my personal opinion, I think that a dark light setting would be reminiscent of like performing at an earth, at a club, basically, a club setting. And large um, lights shining in his direction would would just break the spell of, of the end. I mean, that's my personal take. Um, and again, with, with the Hollywood Bowl, he knew he was being filmed and, and he couldn't turn the lights off if he wanted to be able to successfully film that particular track but i think at that moment he he thought well you know we're going to do the end that this song need this song needs to be done visually in in a, a more subdued darkened setting um so I, I i think the darkness would aid the power of the piece that that's just my personal take yeah no and they do the uh the the med- the medley the mystery train medley and this girl has been yelling throughout the songs, throughout every song, no matter what. And he finally just gets tired and says, shut up, girl, during the beginning of Mystery Train. Shut up, girl. Thought that was funny. Come on, get up and dance, which would, of course, be a post-Morrison song. And the crowd seems super into the train medley. Whatever you want to say about it, and if it shouldn't have been recorded or not, the tr- the train medley got everybody off their feet. If you're listening to it live, man. Sure, yeah. I, I will not dispute that. You're quite right about that. I'm just thinking that medley was very long. Yeah. And personally, I would rather have heard other Doris songs performed, particularly ones that we would never hear live, like Waiting for the Sun, Strange Days, Take It As It Comes. I would have preferred that, but you know, this was their, their music, their call. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, we get the end of the train medley. Everybody's happy. And then Jim Brink, weirdly, the, he pulls the Seattle, gives the band intros, gives the Adolf Hitler poem that uh, that became infamous. <laughs> Just so strange, man. Adolf Hitler is still alive. I slept with her last night. Come out from behind that false mustache, Adolf. I know you're in there. What do you think that was? I mean, what, what is your opinion on the whole Adolf Hitler poem? Why does Why pull that out? I mean that is actually one of his poems. You could, you might argue it's a, it was just a, an attempt to be funny, but I actually think that's that was one of his poems. So, so it was actually reciting his poem. But, but I, I do think that he was fully aware that, that it might throw people off, um, and he liked doing that. He certainly liked to to uh, be unpredictable for his for his crowd. 
Yeah, but the I, fact that Charles he wrote the poem down, it, it, it wasn't in like a suddenly a sudden off the cuff moment of, of being silly. Uh, his poem wasn't his best poem by any stretch, but he was simply doing poetry. I think it was, it's all a part of that big social experiment that he seemed to be ever uh, evolving and trying to do that sort of culminated in Miami and we're on the back end of that here. Um, but a killer version of light my fire from a instrumental standpoint, I believe uh, fever summertime, St. James infirmary, the graveyard poem just, oh, absolutely. yeah. And, but Jim's vocals are just so terrible. So terrible. He, he had, I think the microphone in his mouth at one point. Um, but, what I found particularly interesting was how Jim communicates with the band. He does this, he's done this many times in, ter- in regards to the tempo that he wants for his piece. I think he was saying, um, bring it softer, softer. And eventually the, the instrumentation would get very, very quiet to the point they just stopped playing. So Jim could recite his, his poetry. All right, now let's get real It's just it's just a very interesting way that Jim would would tell tell them to slow slow the tempo or 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 um, go down yeah go down yeah go down and he's just sort of riding it with them until they go till they stop yeah which was a bit unsettling actually because it, it in a way it sort of broke the spell of the song itself but but I mean going into the poetry I wish they kept playing for example. The Alive She Cried album has a version of Light My Fire, which is a which is a mesh of a Paul Rothschild creation of bits and pieces of different performances put together, and the graveyard poem was put into that into that fabricated version of Light My Fire. The instrumentation um, never stopped, and I think it would have worked better better that way uh, than what was presented here, but. It was it was poetry. I was glad, I was glad to hear it. As as a fan, as a listener, I can't. I don't think it really worked stopping the instrumentation. But I'm just glad we have it on the tape. I, I do think they in the 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 Ray in the background sort of doing. I guess that's Ray doing the uh, doing the sort of vocals. Yes. It, you know, oddly enough, that it. it it sort of reminded me of, of my wild love. Yeah. That, um, I don't think that's what he was singing, but that, that's what came to my head. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely hear that too, man. I think, I think you're onto something there, but the band comes in in perfect unison. Like it's, it's, it was real groovy to me that they just come in Jim, of course, butchers in. You talked about it, just engorging the microphone for an entire verse and trailing off at the end. Uh, you know. If, if I could mix my versions, give me, I mean, if you had to pick, hey, make the best Boston version, uh, include the prelude and wake up. Use the the vocals from the first one. Maybe keep you know the the three poems uh, in the middle, and then when you come back in, use the vocals from the second half of the first version too. I don't know if you if you had to make a perfect Boston version as good as you could get it. Even though by the time Light My Fire comes around, and he was drinking beer throughout the show too as well. So yes, there were many photographs from from that particular performance. Beer was abundant. Yeah, and. Um, you know, and, and we get the ending, of course, and the band comes in, you know, we talked about, and Jim, again, you know, you get the whole more, more, he's, everybody's calling out for more and Jim just, would you like to see my genitals? Forget it. I, whatever, Jim, whatever, man, whatever you're doing, man, <laughs> we've got a special treat for you tonight. He says, not only are you not going to see my genitals, but he introduced, <laughs> introduces Ray playing guitar. Robbie playing bass and I'm going to sing my, and you're going to hear me sing my ass off. And 
And so they play a little bit. I think they, they do, they do one bluesy, you know, sort of, uh, been so yeah, been down so long. And then they go into something else. I'm not sure what they were going to do. What do you uh, think? Maggie McGill, was it? Well, it was Maggie McGill, wasn't it? Yeah. It was going to be Maggie McGill at the end. And I find it so interesting whenever Ray, this, I'm just going to play this just because Ray is like, now listen, we can't, uh, we can't instigate anything up here, but they want more. I guess they want more. Yeah, they want more. We we can't do anything. Don't blame the doors. It's Boston. Ray, I love Ray, man. Ray is amazing. So they play. They, the power gets cut, and I and I listened the best I could to try to get a good transcription here. This is about the best I can get of what went on. So I hear. So Jim, all right now, dig it, man. Those suckers, and you hear cheers, and you can't hear anything after that, of course. Uh, and then Ray comes up and he tries to defuse the situation, saying that if we don't leave early. They'll send a letter to all the hall managers barring the doors from playing anywhere else. And that's met with loud boos and jeers. And Jim comes up and he's like, hey, man, wait a minute. What time is it anyway? We're just we're just trying to get ourselves off. Let's have some fun. The audience begins to clap in unison. Such a strong, visceral reaction to this. And hey, hey let's, let's tell them we're not leaving unless we get some power, some more power, Jim yells. Polls are going to win if we don't do something, man. Jim calls to the crowd. The crowd starts chanting, we want more. Then we want the doors. And someone starts pounding on the stage. And the crowd stomps in unison with the pounding. And there's cheers as Jim is on stage. And then a loud chorus of boos rang down. As a security guard or possibly Ray, I've heard the story go, uh, pulls Jim off stage. And that's Boston. For those who were there, it was something they never forgot. I, I keep seeing people online who are at that concert and they say it was like the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. And listening to the audio, despite there being some issues with Jim's vocals and so forth, there were so many more levels to that experience being there. And people were simply blown away. I, I know I would have been. Here's something I've always wondered. I think it was Ray who said after Miami at virtually every concert, there was someone there at, at wings of, of um, the performance stage saying, if you say any profanity, if anything happens, you're going to be arrested on the spot. And I don't know if this is Ray's hyperbole, but, yeah. but throughout 1970, I mean, there'd be concerts where Jim would drop the F-bomb and he said, sucker here, and not, nothing happened. So I don't know if that's an exaggeration on Ray's part, but... Um, it's like we we can't say you can't say the f word at all or we'll be arrested and i i think ray might have made that up yeah you know ray was he's he's my favorite door i would say best keyboard player ever oh yeah yeah and but man he it's right ray is just so interesting though and, and this is also we talked about the the power's cut and jim slams his mic into the to the floor there as we discussed and this is their third and final performance at boston but one thing i thought was interesting uh, we'll get into this we'll go ahead and talk about the aftermath of this show because as reported on april 9th the salt palace manager earl Durgay flies to boston to see the doors live before their gig the following night after viewing the doors performance however earl cancels the show citing a list of grievances he kept a tally of throughout the show and refunds the crowd of the eighteen thousand dollar cake he calls the band uncontrollable and unsuitable for Salt Lake City audiences. Lagoon manager Robert E. Freed backs him up and writes that Jim's performance was lewd, obscene, crude, and disgusting by even the most liberal standards of conduct imaginable whenever he played. But he played a show in 68 at the Lagoon where he was very raucous. I think at the show in question, he's reported to have asked the audience, what's the matter? Are you dead out there? Because this was the other time he played in Salt Lake. And they were real. The, apparently, the crowd was real quiet. They didn't say much. And, and and basically, he was like, "What did you even?" Come? Jim's like, "What did you even come here for?" He berates the audience, gives obscene gestures and obscenities that cause a portion of the fans to leave after the second number. And after asking the audience what they wanted to hear and getting the usual barrage of "Light My Fire" and other hits, Jim responds that those are not those are not show songs. We don't play them now. And the first set is cut short, and they actually do play "Light My Fire." 
and they're asked to perform better for the night show and uh, they do not listen and they give a similar performance. You know, Jim being Jim. Yep. You can get Jim or Jimbo. You never know who will be on stage. Yeah, and Ray Ward of the Oakland Coliseum actually writes to Earl afterwards, calling him chicken. I'm sure you've seen that. I thought I saw it posted in the Mild Equator group. Thought that was so funny. But the Doors go on to perform in Denver and Honolulu. And on April 20th, Jim is acquitted of all charges related to the rest in Phoenix. Ray Charles plays the Boston Arena two weeks later on April 24th. And I continue to Turner play there later that year in October. A year later, B.B. King plays the venue on April 30th, 1971. And we all know what happens in July of that year of 1971, unfortunately. But Earl Dorier actually steps down at the Salt Palace to manage a venue called the Nassau Coliseum. And after B.B. King, no, con- no concerts were held at the Boston Arena until Jim's friend Alice Cooper became the last act to play the venue on July 23rd, 1977. And that, I would say, wraps up the Boston Arena shows. Now, the Doris would be back in 1972 without, without Jim, August 16th, 72. And I'm peeking at the Mild Equator website. Um, the set list would be Tightrope Ride, The Eye of the Sun, Love Me Two Times, Vertilac, Good Rockin', Light My Fire, Close to You, and possibly some more songs. These days, the Boston Common would have many, many excellent concerts. Oh, yeah. And I'm looking at this list because it was posted, I think, on the Mild Equator Facebook group of all the tallies, F-word, head in the crowd, mouthed the F-word, beer, swear, suck me, <laughs> BS, you know, house, just beer, beer all over, gesture and verbal, come come up and dance, continued genitals, uh, you know, sucker here at the end that he says. And, you know, I, I just think it's funny he, he wrote that. Overall, I guess... If we had to rate this performance of on a scale of let's say one to one to ten, you're rating this performance based off of performance, venue, and set list. What do you think overall you'd give this? Because I'll go first to give you sort of a, I guess a a jumping off point as as a performance goes. If I gave all the other members a ten and I gave Jim a uh, if I gave Jim like a three. That would be an eight, an eight point two five stars. So I'd give about an eight on performance. Basically, Jim bringing that down two stars. Because how about we just go seven and a half there? The venue, I think the venue is a five. Would you give Boston Arena a five as a venue or lower? Well, I know the acoustics there are terrible. Based on the recording, I would probably give a higher rating than what I think the people actually experience because it's it's honestly. An echo chamber in, in that hall. Musically, I think the, the, the doors were, they, they kept getting better and better. So they, they did not fall apart at all at that performance. But vocally, I think that it was not as best by any stretch. In fact, of, of the batch of um, live performances put out through Bright Midnight, this probably was Jim's weakest vocal, I'd have to say. And some people, again, would find that heresy. They think this was the the best performance because because they'll say Jim was having a good time and I think he was but but compared to oh God I'm so biased because I love I love the 1967 1968 doors and maybe this is unfair I keep comparing the, the 1970 doors to the 1967 doors where Jim's vocal style was completely different Maybe I should I should compare it simply to other 1970 performances. I'd say probably about a seven overall. I, I think I'm right there with you. I'd give it a seven. The set list was a little lacking in the first show, made up for it a bit in the second show. I think, especially with the poems. So I'd give that about a seven. Uh, you know, the the venue, the recording's great. The venue's you know not that good. I think that sort of evens out to about a six and a half or a seven. Probably six and a half there, and maybe the performances uh, seven and a half. So. I would say about a seven two is what I would go. So if looking at the at, at the set list for for the early show, Roadhouse Blues, it was it was a good version. I prefer Vancouver to this version, but but this version I thought was pretty solid. Ship of Fools was a song that I think worked better on the album. Yes, live. but this version I think it, it was it was good. It wasn't spectacular, but it was it was it was good. Alabama song, Backdoor Man 5 to 1. 
in the same key. So I, I understand why it's done as a medley, but I, I don't like medleys because you only get half of Alabama song. And lyrically, they don't interconnect. It doesn't tell a story. Um, and it eats up a lot of time because, you know, once you hear Alabama song, like your next 10 minutes are, are, are gone. I wish they'd just done Backdoor Man in its entirety. When the music's over, it doesn't work in an arena. It's just not suitable for that. It's, it's, a, it's a small venue song for its power to carry. It worked great at the Roundhouse. It worked great at uh, Back Bay Theater. It even worked great on Danish TV because with Jim talking, singing directly to the camera, it's like, it's like being in a small club hearing this performance i would have replaced that with, with other songs waiting for the sun queen of the highway thing, uh, strange days uh, same thing with the mystery train medley instrumentally it was spot on it was it was sound and, and the audience loved it but again i would i would rather have heard dora's songs and like wake up that oddly enough that works tacked onto um light my fire i don't know why but i, I just think it, it works uh, vocally, not Jim's best by any stretch. And with the with the late show break on through, I thought was solid. I enjoyed that one. Again, when the, when the music's over, it just I wish they could have retired that. And instead, for a lengthy piece, drop when the music's over, bring in the soft parade. Have that as as being the second lengthy piece in addition to the end. Because in a way, when the music's over in the end they're kind of the same if you really think about it the, the, the same vibe the same the same uh the lyrics are totally different instrument the instrument instrumentation is different but it's the same kind of voyage and in a way it's kind of repetitive so i i really wish they had done a soft parade roadhouse blues oddly enough the studio version is phenomenal i've always preferred the studio version to anything live um the spy Which, hearing that live it was interesting at the end. He kind of Jim veered off into some interesting um, lyrics. Build Me a Woman is a really bizarre song. I like it. It's very bluesy. I don't quite understand the whole Sunday trucker Christian mother <laughs> yeah. all about. But that's that's just, I guess, poetry. Uh, you Make Me Real. Again, studio version's better. Mystery Train, I could do without that. Uh, Light My Fire. Again, this version was sort of awful. Although I, I, I did like the, the graveyard poem, but down so long, great bluesy number. Maggie McGill, uh, is that a real Maggie McGill? Is that based on a real person? Our Jim Morrison created character based off of a, a woman in the old West who resorts to prostitution. So I guess it's not really a real person. I was like that too, but uh, yeah. Morrison Hotel feels very incomplete. It, it should have a long piece of the end. It, it has an anticlimactic in there. But I think, you know, I think we did this. We've talked a lot, man. I've, this has been a fun conversation. I think about this show and the Boston show. And I think no matter where you're at on the spectrum, no matter if you believe that, hey, this is the best doors show ever or if it's the worst door show ever, I think there's a lot to appreciate about this show, um, a lot. And, and the crowd seems electric for this performance. So if you haven't heard this show, I would recommend seeing it, hearing it, because it's not even the best show probably of 1970. But there's a lot to be desired with the show but there's also a lot to gain from the show what do you what would you say if somebody hasn't heard the show i i would approach it from a couple of different angles as a as a bostonian i would tell people i know in my city that this is part of our history when the doors came to town and they were very popular here in boston and you've got to see the show the, the or listen to the show the doors at the boston arena i mean you can't beat this uh, Granted, I don't think it was as good as Back Bay Theater, but I think it was it, it was um, the band just having fun, basically. Jim was having fun. Although, granted, the other doors, I think, were more focused than Jim was focused. Um, and it, it gave a good sense of, of their sound at that point in their history um, in 1970. One thing I really appreciate was when this out when this came out along with a slew of other shows recorded for absolutely live in, in those days it was with releasing these shows with warts and all without any any kind of overdubs um in contrast to let's say the more recent isle of white release which has 
loads of overdubs, which caused quite a bit of controversy in tourist circles. But with the Boston Arena, um, it, you're you're basically hearing exactly what happened. I don't I don't think there were any over. I could be mistaken, but I don't think there were any overdubs on on this recording. And I appreciate that. And it, it's it's an honest recording of of the Doors as they sounded. Um, and part- particularly the fact that this is a show where the power was cut at the end. How how many recordings of a, a concert would include something like that? I, I think it was quite nice. And we got to hear a live version of The Spy, which is quite a highlight, and, and some poetry. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a, a show that people should hear. Every series, Doris fans should certainly have a recording of this in their collection. Not yeah. my favorite performance, but it's still a Doris performance. Thumbs up from me. Well, Tarn, man, I really, we have really did a deep dive on this and Doors in general. I think we touched on a lot of great stuff, man. Um, is there anything you want to plug? Is there anything you've, I know you're, we have the anniversary of the uh, Titanic, you know, the sinking of the Titanic coming up here, a big Titanic historian. I don't know if you had anything planned or is there anything, anywhere people can follow you or anything you have that you want to plug at all? Well, let me think. Personally, not really, but there are some other things I I. I could definitely plug. If anyone is interested in the Titanic, I would recommend that if you're in the Las Vegas area to go to the Luxor Hotel because they have on, on display an enormous piece of the wreck of the Titanic recovered in 1998, brought here to Boston and put on display. And I actually worked up close with that piece of the, of the Titanic wreck for much of 1998. And I went on tour around the country at the Titanic Artifact Exhibition and uh, with this piece of the wreck, and it's been at the Luxor for, for um, quite some time. I always wondered when the Titanic sank, the band kept on playing, and what would what would Jim have done? I always thought he had such a morbid imagination. Would would he have stayed? Would he have played music as as the ship went down beneath his feet? Man, that's that's a, that's a great little little bit. And also, I would want to mention if uh, if you if you don't, you have a. A YouTube channel, correct? Dedicated to Titanic. I do. Well, it's sort of a, a brand new channel that I'm starting up. That I I up- uploaded some some different Titanic things, like a an apparent a couple of appearances I've made on let's see one is on a Dallas TV show in the year 2000, talking about about the Titanic artifact exhibit happening in Fair Park. Also. Um, I, I got to pull the lever to blow Titanic's whistles at a test of the recovered whistles in Wisconsin back in back in 1999. I, I uploaded that as well, and I'm going to put up some Doors um, videos as well. I, I actually um, created a video some time ago. I, I don't have it up right now about this a, a Doors piece, uh, Smokey the Bear. It was basically an in, impromptu in the studio jam they did. Smokey the Bear veered off into Build Me a Woman. I think that that was from 1969 during the Morrison Hotel sessions. I don't have that up quite yet, but my page is just uh, Boston Titanic. Yeah, Boston Titanic. I'm looking at it right here. Fireworks over the Boston Harbor is another cool thing. So, I mean, there's really a cool mix of stuff on there. Uh, the Titanic, definitely an interesting historical event. I had the chance for the, I think I told you about this, for the 100th anniversary, they had a big exhibit, and I think they still have a big exhibit in Gatlinburg, close to in Tennessee, that they do. And you could throw roses, I think they let them out to see where the Titanic sank, and I got to do that, which that's not even that big of a thing, but uh, it's a fun little thing to do. In 2012, on the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, I was on a ship called the Azamara Journey on the centenary of the sinking. And a ship called the Balmoral left England and it retraced the voyage of Titanic. It stopped in France, France and in Southern Ireland, then went over to the above the spot where the ship sank. And I was on a ship, the Azamara Journey. We left New York, we went to Halifax, then we went above. And I was one of the speakers and talked about. Um, working at the Titanic exhibitions and collecting Titanic books. It was extraordinary. I mean, it's just amazing to be at the spot where the ship sank a hundred years after the fact. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, man. It's so interesting. But Tarn, again, thank you, man, for being on. I'm sure we'll be in touch. We'll do another episode. Doors related. Uh, it's a Doors related thing. I, I've got to recommend Mild Equator. It is 
the best online site you will ever find for serious doors research. It has um, dates for everything from recording in the studio to um, their their live performances. It has set lists. It has the accounts of people who were there who saw the doors as um, a website um, that has has the 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 view of a historian looking at the doors. I mean, my goodness, Logan has done a stunning job critiquing the history of the doors and continues to update the site. So uh, there's no book in print, I think, that can even touch this website in regards to comprehensive doors research. And I go I go back on that site like like every week. Just just to kind of commit to memory the songs that the doors performed on stage. And it's always exciting when new information pops up. So I'll equate it. Com- check it out. Completely agree with that. It's been a a useful I mean useful is an understatement. It's been such an integral part of being able to do this podcast and uh Wish all the best to those guys. I mean, that's a great, well, great side. So I'd recommend everybody do that. But again, Tarn, thanks again, man. It's been a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Tarn Stefanos. You can find his YouTube channel by searching for Boston Titanic. You can also find his old articles from the Doors Collector magazine in back issues. You can find this podcast on Twitter at the Doors Pod and on Facebook by searching for Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. I also want to thank doorshistory.com and The Mild Equator for information used throughout the show. A special thanks also to Reed Berrickman of The Dirty Doors for additional research. The music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in two weeks. But until then, keep the doors open and the music loud. Gentlemen, what time is it? Yeah.